Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for showing us grace when we didn't deserve it. Sending him to die for us in Christ, we thank you for your obedience, even unto death. We thank you that because of what you've done for us, that we can be brought back to life. Thank you for your victory. Help us to walk in that. Father, give us humble hearts to learn this morning and help us to look more like you today. It's your name we pray. Amen. You guys have a seat. So envy in the kingdom of God is not a, not a virtue, right? I wish I could do that. I have a hard time playing the radio. Like, these guys are just so gifted, and God's placed them in a place to use their gift for his kingdom. That's awesome. Um, in just a few minutes, we're going to look at Acts 19. Um, so if you have your Bible and you want to you jump there. But I want to start with a question, and the question is, um, what do you do when something that you love is threatened? What do you do when something that you love is threatened? And um, to set this up, I want to take us back about 10 years, um, not quite 10 yet, but in September of 2007, there was a television show that premiered called Chuck. Anybody remember Chuck? Yeah, it was Nerds Unite, right? Like Chuck was a, Chuck was a nerdy guy who somehow had like been, been kicked out of Stanford, and he wound up working at uh, the show's equivalent of a Best Buy. So he was, he was kind of a computer nerd. No offense to anyone in the room. Um, but, but that was the way they set it up. That's the way they played it. And, um, and Chuck, uh, Chuck was kind of funny. They you know, had, some, had some funny stuff. But, but something happened and like a computer was downloaded into Chuck's brain. So he would have these flashes where he would see all the stuff that was in the computer and he couldn't control them. And they brought in a, you know, a, a blonde private like, detective or whatever she was, like somebody in, somebody in the, the, the military structure to control Chuck. And of course, they fell in love, and that's what happens on TV. But, but the, the interesting thing, the reason that, um, the reason that uh, I bring up Chuck this morning is that, that Chuck went through two seasons on NBC, and um, it was really loved by its fans. Like, there were people who just loved the show Chuck. Um, and, and, but the ratings were sort of iffy, okay? And so at, at the, towards the end of the second season of Chuck, NBC had not renewed Chuck for a third season, all right? Well, the fans of Chuck weren't having any of it. And so they took to the platform of the internet. And message boards everywhere blew up with save Chuck efforts, Okay, um, so much so that um, that actually, what happened was um, they the, the, they started the, the television critics started to get the, the started to get the attention of television critics, and 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 well-known television critics started to lobby the network to save Chuck, put Chuck back on the air. Um, at the end of Chuck's second season, it was about the 80th most watched show on TV. Okay, so we're not talking about a smash hit here. But then the fans of Chuck said. We know what talks, money talks. And so what they did was they actually started putting together uh, consumer rallies to go to, the, to, to Chuck's advertisers, one of which was Subway. So if you ever watched episodes of Chuck, they'd always have a, have a sandwich at Subway. And so when it was getting close to like the finale of season two and Chuck hadn't been renewed, the fans of Chuck had a, had, they called it footlong day, 
and they, they went to, to Subway, they were posting pictures on the internet of, of their activities, and, and they purchased footlongs at Subway to save Chuck. Um, they, they started rallying on online polls. Entertainment Weekly and USA, USA Today put out polls which shows that are on the bubble to, for renewal should be renewed. And the fans of Chuck went out in force, and they won all of those polls. Okay? And, um, and, and actually, they, they started lobbying these companies, and I, I, it's a real thing, right? So Nestle, the company Nestle, that makes nerds, remember Chuck was a computer nerd? They, the fans of Chuck started going out and buying nerds all the way off the shelf. Like, no more nerds left. And taking pictures and posing them, save Chuck. So much so that when it was finally announced that a third season of Chuck was going to be filmed, Nestle sent thousands of boxes of nerds to the set of Chuck, and, and it, it became like this huge sort of viral advertising campaign, right? But, but what do you do... What do you do? That's a television show. But what do you do when something that you love is threatened? Now, that comes on a scale, right? A television show, my life will go on and has. I've mourned more than one television show leaving the air. Okay? But sometimes it's, it's bigger things. It could be a job that I love. It could be even a church that I love. That, that a point in time comes where it's threatened. And what do we do in that situation? And what, is, what we do in that situation, what does, it, what does that reveal about us? And so what we're going to do this morning is um, we're going to take a look at Acts 19. So if you've got your Bible and you want to turn there, and we've been following, we've been following the, the journeys of Paul over the last few weeks through several cities, and here it is. You can't, can't have a Sunday without it, Okay. Here's Paul's journey, the red line that starts in the bottom right and moves up through. He'd gone through the northern part of that region, region called Asia. It's modern-day Turkey, across the water into Macedonia. And, and we are sort of like fast-forwarding over a couple stories. Acts 17, Paul in Athens. If you haven't read it, go read it. Meditate on, on what Paul does there. In Corinth, in Acts chapter 18, Paul's in Corinth. But everywhere he went, he, and he proclaimed the, the gospel of the risen Christ that Jesus is the answer to, to our problems. Our, our problem is sin, and it's Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that, that gives the answer to those problems. Everywhere he went, it was just so disruptive. We talked about that over the last several weeks. It was just so disruptive, this message that you can be whole in Christ. And where we're going to land today in Acts chapter 19 is in the city of Ephesus, and that's, that's the area that's circled. It's it's right on the coast of, of what would be modern-day Turkey. And it was a, it was a, this was a significant city. Um, Ephesus was the major city in the region. And Ephesus was renowned because in Ephesus resided one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was a temple there. It was the temple to Artemis. But it was a specific temple to Artemis. Well, I don't wanna, we don't want to get lost in the weeds on this, but Artemis, the goddess, took on several sort of forms in the ancient world. And, and there would, but there was a temple to Artemis in the city of Ephesus. Um, but, but Ephesus was, that, that temple brought enormous wealth to the city. There was a lot of civic pride in Ephesus. It was a major, major city. And Paul gets to Ephesus and he stays there for a while. He, it's, it's kind of a big enough city that the message of the gospel, it took some time for it to go viral in a way that it disrupted city life, but disrupt it did, as we'll see. But one of the cool things about Ephesus 
And, and it, it's just a, a, I just want to use this as a way to, to sort of set something up with this, but to remind us that the stories we're reading here in the book of Acts, these aren't, this, this isn't fable or myth. These are real people in real places. And one of the fascinating things about the city of Ephesus, the ancient city of Ephesus, is that it's still there. Okay? Not in a modern form. The ancient city is still there. There's a river that runs right through where Ephesus would be to the coast. And that what that happened over many, many years is that river dumped silt out. And now the coastline is several miles away from the ancient city. So the people have migrated to the coast. But the ancient city of Ephesus is still there. You can walk through it. This is, this is actually the ancient city. That's, that's the remains of the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's just sitting there. Okay? So, I mean, people with... People with, with a low ethical, you know, um, muscle, they may walk through there and even pick up stones. I, I don't know anyone who has one sitting on their table, except I do um, know someone who's been there and has a stone sitting on their table. This is, this is like the city of, this is the marketplace in the city of Ephesus. It's just sitting there today. You can see the modern road behind it. There are homes that are just left there on the hillside that are preserved to this day. They've put the canopy up to sort of protect them some more. This is the, the main street through the city of Ephesus. When we read this story, you don't even have to imagine showing you the places where these things happen. It's one of the, one of the, most, uh, it's, it's the most preserved ancient library of, of the ancient world. It's, it's, this is a first century library, the facade of it that's left. Right? Um, again, there's a different view of the street, but the city of Ephesus was this major place, and it's, it's still standing, like it's still around. And what we're going to look at this morning is something that, that, that occurred in the city of Ephesus, and it's a fascinating story on a couple fronts, one of which is that the, the narrative of the book of Acts, we followed it through, and it's followed sort of what Paul has done and the response to Paul. And the story we're going to look at today is actually focused on the people of the city of Ephesus. So if you're in the book of Acts, chapter 19, you'd look at verse 23. Verse 23, it says this. It says, about that time, and that time is... <laughs> non-specific to us, but, but Paul had been in Ephesus for quite a while. Um, his, his ultimate stay there was a couple of years. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, the way being the, the, the first century name for Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So here's the setup, right? There's this guy, Demetrius, in the city of, of um, Ephesus, and he makes little statues. And check this out. It's show and tell time. There's our lovely lady. That's Artemis. Artemis of the Ephesians. Um, that is actually a, a, a carving of Artemis that was found in this area uh, from the dates to the, to the first century. The goddess Artemis is, is a fascinating thing too. She was so unlike other, other goddesses. Almost every other goddess in the ancient world was... Her fertility was lived out through sexual exploit or through sexual encounters. And so it, it, they, it fostered a lot of temple prostitution. But not Artemis. I don't, again, I don't want to trouble you with the whole story, but Artemis was a virgin. Um, her chastity was a big part of her story. And, and, and she became a protector of, of really, of childbearing. She, she's sort of associated with, um, with the midwife, Okay. All that to say, Artemis was this goddess that was, she was differentiated from the Greek Artemis, um, but, but very specific here in the city of Ephesus. And they were, they associated being from Ephesus with being from this place where Artemis was front and center. 
And the name Artemis actually means safe and sound. So, so living in the place of Artemis was living in a place of protection. You, it's a place where you're safe. You're protected. And that's, that's sort of what's happening here, right? Demetrius, he makes these carvings, and he makes money on it, okay? Or these silver statues, he makes money on it. So verse 25. So then he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from, the, from the biz, this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Okay, That is a simple statement for someone who has an idol in their life and the gospel encounters it, right? That the God that I currently worship is not the real God. And they, they're here, so here's this conclusion and a statement of reality that, that this gospel message that Paul has been proclaiming has gone out. It's taking root in this, in this region. And in fact, it did. The city of Ephesus became a major Christian city. Um, so verse 27, and there is danger, he goes on, Demetrius speaking, and there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into dis- disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Okay? So here's this, here's this dilemma for this man, uh, Demetrius, in the city of Ephesus. He, he makes a living off of, off of these statues to Artemis. And at the same time, at the same time, Artemis is a, is a piece of civic pride. Artemis is what has Ephesus on the map, okay? And so he brings, he, certainly his motivation was personal wealth and personal income. But he's, he's taking that and he's also appealing beyond that like, hey, if, if Artemis suffers, we all suffer. It's good for us that Artemis is known, that Artemis is valued, that people come from all over the world to, to come to this temple to Artemis. And that's his argument. So it goes on, verse 28. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together to the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. And so as we've seen time and time again, notice what happens here. Someone else gets dragged into this, right? It's Paul's message. Paul's the point person. But, you know, poor Gaius and Aristarchus, they're the ones who get dragged into, and check this out, into the theater, Okay? It's still sitting there. This theater in Ephesus, this is the place. They drag them into this place. Um, another angle on this, it's estimated it seats about 25,000 people. Okay? 25,000 people. For scale, maybe, would be like the northern end zone. It's roughly the northern end zone of Ohio Stadium. Okay? Built on the, basically the same shape. Okay? Now jump down a couple verses if you're following your Bible. I'm going to jump down to verse 32. It says, now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Remember the mob mentality we've been talking about? Like, people just get in the streets and start, start chanting, start crying. That The confusion is reigning, and some were there don't even know what's going on. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. We have... A, 
in one of the great ironies of the book of Acts, we actually have a Jew who's coming to the defense of Paul. In many of the places we've looked, it's the Jews who are, who are trying to stone him and kill him and get him kicked out of the city. But Alexander is going to try and quiet the crowd. And in verse 34, the last verse of this section we'll look at, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So for roughly one half of football, right, they stood and they cried out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. A worship service broke out there. You see what happened? There was something within the city that was threatened, and it's, it's like the fuse was lit. And that day in the city of Ephesus, this, this praise to Artemis breaks out. And so what we want to do, just, I'm just going to take a couple minutes on this. But what we want to do is we want to look at that response, and I'm going to ask us, wait a minute, do we have an Artemis? Do I have an Artemis? Here's the thing. This is Artemis, and Artemis is threatened. And, and, and the threat to Artemis comes in these forms. Obviously, there's a religious threat to Artemis. There, this was, a, this was a, a cult. Like, it was a, the Artemis cult is written about in a lot of literature. That there, were, there were peoples that, that had specific practices. They had religious devotion that was associated with Artemis. And so their religion was, was, um, was threatened. But obviously, we saw from Demetrius, their commerce was threatened. That, that his, his financial gain was being threatened. And the city of Ephesus was one of the wealthiest cities in the first century. It had a large, large, wealthy class of people. They had indoor plumbing in these homes that they've uncovered. This was, a, this was a, an affluent group of people. And so their, their way of life is threatened by the gospel. And we've mentioned this, but there's civic pride. This is what puts Ephesus on the map. And I would ask... What puts Central Ohio on the map? How do we feel when it's threatened? Or what puts your little, our little church on the map? How do we feel when it's threatened? Or your workplace, and how do you feel when it's threatened? You see, there's something in us, there's something in us where the response to Artemis is really similar to the responses that we go through when the things that we love are threatened. And so I'd like, to talk about, I'd like to talk about the connection between what we love and what we worship. What we love and what we worship. You see, we have affection for things. And that affection, it, it produces worship. I have my teams, okay? I have my teams. I've, I've figured out a pattern where I've got a summer sport that I can follow and as soon as they're done, I've got a winter sport I can follow. I've got 12 months of affection for the Atlanta Braves and the Columbus Blue Jackets. Okay? My patient wife. What happens, I have this, I have this need, and I, I can't describe it. It comes from places that I don't like to talk about. But, but when it's the, the 11th inning, and they're playing the worst team in baseball by record this year, and they give up the winning run after being ahead the whole game, something in me just churns. Now, I'm a little dulled to it now, okay? But in the past, it's cost us television remotes. I'll admit it. 
the furniture has suffered. Okay? I've justified, I've justified an extra helping of cake and ice cream because the beloved blue jacket's lost again. And that's a lot of cake and ice cream. We know this, <laughs> right? But our idols get threatened. We love these things and we, we worship them. We, we sit and, and watch them. We give them our affection. We, we adorn ourselves with their logos and we have affection for them and we worship them. But something else happens, and it's something that's true, is because we were made to worship. Worship is a part of God's design. See, the other thing that happens is that worship actually, it actually promotes our affection for something. You see, there's this, there's this relationship between the two. There's a, there's a symbiotic relationship between what we love and what we worship. We worship it because we love it, but we find in the worship that our love grows. And this is a bit of what we see going on in the city of Ephesus. You see, Artemis was something that they, they were getting gain from it. But once the crowd begins to, to generate energy, and once the volume goes up, and once the temperature rises... The affection seems to even grow. And it's true for us. We do the same thing. And just like those in Ephesus, we have a tendency to put an idol in that seat of affection. We have a tendency to put something there that maybe in and of itself isn't necessarily bad. You see, the goddess Artemis was all about flourishing and protection. Those aren't bad things. In fact, it was, it was God in Genesis 1 who, who told his, his words to humanity were, be fruitful and multiply. Go out and flourish. Flourishing is good. It's part of God's design. But it's not exclusive. It's not the only thing. And you see... We have a tendency to put things in that spot of our affection. And at the risk of hitting some spots, I've joked about sports teams, but how do we feel when we wake up the morning after the annual Buckeye loss? How do we feel? We've given them control over our temperament over our emotional state. Perhaps it's a job. I've wanted this job. I've done everything I can to get to it, to have it. And now it's being threatened. And how do I respond? And how I respond is going to tell me something about my, my love for that job. It would be it would be ignorant to say, how do we respond when our political position is threatened? How do we respond to that? What comes out of us when our position loses? This is, I, I, I feel this. What about our children? Remember, not all idols are inherently bad things. These are all good things. But we put our children in a place where, where they are the object of our worship. 
and we're counting on them to provide us with something that, quite frankly, they were never intended to. Fulfillment, achievement. That's not why God gives us family. And yet, I sit at a baseball game last night for my son, and my insides are churning I want him to show up that other kid so that, quite frankly, this dad can be the dad of the kid who beat all your kids. I'm rotten. And I got four of them. Maybe it's a particular lifestyle, a level of comfort, your home. My home has to be a certain way. And if that gets threatened, look out. I think for a great many of us, one of the things we worship is sex. We have all, there's all kinds of cultural addictions, and we know those addictions are present in this room. We know it. But not even that. Even those of us who may not be struggling with some of the hidden addictions, we've, we've sort of oriented our, our marriage around our sex rather than around loving our spouse as God loves the church. We've made it about getting what I want and when it, that's threatened, what comes out of us? You see, this cycle of affection and worship, it plays out in our lives in all of these ways. And while in Ephesus they had one idol that's present in the story that represented many things, my life is full of idols. I worship all kinds of things, all kinds of things that don't deserve my affection, that don't have the, the capability of delivering on what I'm counting on them for. And it's why, it's why we do what we do here when we worship. Because you see, if we want to orient this rightly. If we want to get this right, we have to remember that worship and love form this, this give-and-take relationship. And so sometimes I worship even when I don't feel the affection because this much is true. You were made to worship something. And if we don't worship the Creator... We will worship something within the creation. We will. And it's destructive. And it separates us from God and from our neighbor. And so we do this. We worship because worship calibrates our affections. We're blessed to have this group from, from Cedarville with us. And I'm going to ask them to come back up in many ways to, to bring us back into prayer, to bring us back into worship. I get it. I understand there are things about worship that make us uncomfortable. But I'm going to invite us, all of us, no matter how familiar or unfamiliar we may be with this particular song, no matter how we may feel at the moment, you see, it's worship we, we we don't wait to feel a certain way to worship. We worship so that our feelings towards God are generated rightly.
And it's why we do this here. So I'm going to hand it to them, and they're going to lead us in some more worship.